0: I'm Casey Feiney, and this is Fast Company's Creative Conversation, a podcast where we tap into some of the most creative minds in film, TV, music, and beyond. We're tackling the mental roadblocks these creatives have encountered on projects or moments where they felt stuck in their careers. By diving into the problem, finding out how they overcame it and the lessons they learned from it, you'll hopefully have a clear blueprint on how to manage your own creativity. Over the course of his relatively short career, Nicholas Bertel has become one of Hollywood's most sought-after composers, and for good reason. His scores for films including Moonlight, The Big Short, Vice, and If Beale Street Could Talk aren't your average film scores. Nicholas experiments with unconventional techniques in order to capture abstract themes like love or even finance. In our conversation... Nicholas explains how he went from managing hedge funds on Wall Street to being an Oscar-nominated composer and why it's important to stretch the limits of film music. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. So, the story goes that when you were five years old, you saw Chariots of Fire and heard that iconic theme song. And I want you to take me back to that moment. What was it about that combination of score and cinema that pulled you in and kept you in? Because it could have just been some pa- passing fancy of like, mom, I want to take piano lessons, but you obviously stuck with it in a pretty significant way. So, what was it about that film score and just film scores in general that really pulled you in?
1: I've actually I've spent a little time, you know, going back and imagining that moment because um, you know it's it's clearly at the very beginning of some of my earliest memories. Um, I think there was something you know, first of all, Vangelis's score for Charts of Fire is amazing. Oh, it's amazing. Like, like it's what? just incredible. One of the best. Oh yeah. And there's something there's this pulsing rhythm, there's this inspirational um melody. Mm-hmm. Um and and clearly it's the coupling of that music with the picture, with this story, um, that that's you know, set something off in me, I guess. And uh I don't remember the exact moment or the, 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 the you know whatever was that first impulse for me to go to the piano, but I went to the piano and you know was just trying to figure. out, I think the first thing I did was do that sort of. na gotta start somewhere. Gotta start somewhere. Yeah. And and maybe because it's so like you know anyone, pretty much anybody. You know clearly I didn't know how to play the piano, but but I could do that. You know right yeah. away I could just you know you repeat that note and um and then you try to figure out the other stuff and um and it just it just took me in uh, right from that moment. Yeah, and it just became this outlet for me where I would constantly go to this piano. And as soon as I started playing around with it, I asked for piano lessons. Yeah. And um, I started, uh, I remember I wrote a, a piece. I would try, you know, there's this piece I wrote where I was taking clearly inspiration from Chariots of Fire. I wrote a piece that was the same chord sort of playing like da na nah, you know. But right. it was a chord, and then I played another chord on top, and it sounded kind of like... I don't know. I thought it sounded like train, like a train on train tracks, so I remember <laughs> calling calling it the train symphony.
0: I was going to say, did you <laughs> yeah. call it like just these two chords of Flame? <laughs> yeah. like, oh
1: How close, yeah. No, it was, it was I called, we called it the train symphony. So I was like, you know, my dad and I was like, oh, I'll play the train symphony. i like, cool. It was just these two chords, you know. Oh, that's um, so funny. But yeah, it was, you know, I was really into that. I was, um when I was like six and seven, I was obsessed with Les Mis I was obsessed with Phantom of the Opera I was that kid in school who you know at like the Friday morning assembly would play the Phantom of the Opera on the piano <laughs> you know, that was my move I was like I would play that whole the whole
0: yeah so I was you say that kid as if it's that common playing the Phantom of the, of the well, Opera well you know
1: there's always that kid in school who's like I'm gonna play you know who plays the piano right you know, okay. there's that, yeah and so I was the kid playing the piano who played Phantom of the Opera you know um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah that was how I got my start and then I, I Um, As I was singing lessons, I I got really into classical music Mm -hmm. and um, loved Mozart and and Beethoven. Um, Mozart has this set of uh, variations uh, that he wrote on the Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star theme, which is so beautiful. And so that was one of the first pieces that I also became obsessed with. So I would always play these 12 variations and... uh, yeah, that was that was the start, but but you're right that it was it was film and music in this magical kind of alchemy that that first inspired
0: me. Right, and you know your path to becoming a film composer was somewhat linear and somewhat not because you studied <laughs> at Juilliard <laughs> yes. with, to be a concert pianist, I believe, when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you went to college at Harvard, you majored in psychology and then went to work on Wall Street managing hedge funds, so, you know, you have to these kind of two tracks that you're going on, yes. and, I mean, what eventually brought you back into the fold of music, because, you know, you, you, you could have stayed on that Wall Street route.
1: Well, what's interesting is I always was doing music throughout these periods, you know, there was never a part of my life where I wasn't playing music. I think there was it, there were just different phases where I was able to do more than others. Right. So like, um, you know. Your rap group, Yeah, my, well, my hip that was actually, for me, being in, that, our band was called the Witness Protection Program in college and in college, uh, my my two focuses were uh, the Witness Protection Program which was our instrumental hip-hop band with two rappers and, and spent a huge amount, of, I mean, we played all sorts of colleges and you know clubs in New York and but all over the nice. sort of the northeast um we our, our high point was we opened for Jurassic 5 and Black Alicious Are you serious Yeah yeah that Wait. was our that was our high point <laughs> no we were trying to get signed and it was a whole th- and we uh we we I have a photo of of that night in my uh in my studio still yeah cuz that was our <laughs> that was like our you know that was it was an amazing moment. but i was so i was in this band and then it was in college too where a dear friend of mine Nick Lavelle who tragically passed away a few years ago um he was a brilliant director who when you know we're both in college and he was making a ten thousand dollar feature film Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: he just asked me one day hey have you ever thought about composing for for movies and i said yeah i I always have but i've never had a movie (laughs) to, to score so we spent the next you know three years um experimenting with what that process actually looked like so you know so much of this story i think of all of our lives in a lot of ways is, is these circuitous paths where we we don't know exactly what's going to happen and right. for me at the end of college our band was breaking up and uh this film wasn't coming out right away and i ended up meeting someone who himself what uh, had gone to harvard and was a composer and he hired me, just he said, "You know, we'll find something interesting for you to do here, uh, and I learned to trade currencies and as one uh, does as was whole, <laughs> but what was fascinating it was this it was kind of this fascinating education where, um, you know, I, I ended up learning a lot about, uh, international finance and, um, during, you know, at at night I was, you know, I actually gave concerts for our investors and would, uh, I I was scoring friends' short films and, uh, you know, so it was this, this kind of like dual life in a way where I was, uh, you know, I set up a studio, I bought a piano, I was, you know, constantly doing music and I don't think I ever realized how, you know, when or how, uh, the, you know, I could do film music because I think, you know, arts and entertainment as, as, as an industry and as an idea, um, it, you know, it takes a while. It's a, it's, it's a long term, uh, uh, sort of investment itself, uh, in yourself and in your interests, uh, that enable you to do that. And, um, but as I, you know, as, as years, you know, passed, I, I realized more and more how sad I was not following that full time. And so I, you know, I quit my job and, Started making this pilgrimage out to Los Angeles to, um, to full time devote myself because I knew that uh, I just knew on a very personal level like I wasn't happy not doing that with every ounce of my being and um, so that that was how that happened but you know there was never a I think actually sometimes in life you know when you're not able to do the thing that you love it makes you clearly want to do it even more and uh, and so you know I appreciated so much. How ama- what, what a blessing it is to be able to do those things
0: and you do it so well and I feel like you know when it comes to the work that you do in film because you've composed for uh, for Adam McKay and Barry Jenkins and it's the work you do is so interesting because it's you're often tasked with creating something from such an abstract idea like what does joy sound like what does finance sound like <laughs> so when you sign on to do to score a film, you read the source material, you read the script, and then what? Like, what's your process?
1: So that's another really good question because um, music is such an abstract art form. In a lot of ways, maybe it's the most abstract. You know, it's, the, oh, it's these frequencies. You know, it's right. it's sound pressure. You know, it's frequencies in the air that um, that in combination create emotions. Yeah. So it's this very very. Um, kind of crazy phenomenon that that there are these you know that there's sound waves that actually like translate into very specific complexes of emotion, and um, I think that you know there's an early stage, and I love getting involved at a very early stage because um, you know the key for me at that moment is I'll read you know if there if there is source material I'll read a, the book or mm-hmm. for example or you know I'll read the script, um, but talking to the director is the is really the first thing I'll do where. Um, you know so much of what of what I do is exploring these feelings but having a focus to that yeah and that's one of the beautiful things I think about films is that every movie represents its own universe mm. and I strongly believe that every movie you know should have its own sound yeah. and and we don't know what that is you know the director does none of us really know what that is right. and we don't even know until later in the process once we've experimented and the movie itself kind of, speaks back to you you know when you mm-hmm. put a piece of music up against a, the picture and it doesn't have any music there before you put a piece of music up something happens yeah. and it starts saying something and the movie itself changes and the bizarre thing is the music changes too like your perception of even what you're hearing changes right and so that process is is a much later phenomenon so at that early stage you're talking about um you know, I hear, let's say with, with Barry, you know, on, on Beale Street, you know, uh, I said to him, you know, what are you feeling? And this was before he shot the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first thing he said to me was, he's like, I'm, I'm hearing brass and horns. And, you know, we talked about this idea of the 20th, mid 20th century New York and jazz. Right. And, and that was it. Just, that was the conversation. And so I, you know, I said to myself, um, in a way it's about creating these feelings, I guess. And I'm,
0: and that I guess, book has a lot of them. A lot of feelings. <laughs> and you're
1: trying, exactly, and you're trying to imagine, you know, at that stage, there's no movie yet. Yeah. You know, so you're trying to imagine to yourself, well, what might I feel like when I'm watching this movie in my mind? Right. And so I remember, like, with Barry, I wrote these, um, I wrote some pieces where I was experimenting with trumpets and flugelhorns and French horns and cornet. And I had this idea of uh, exploring the types of harmonies that ex- that exist in mid-20th century jazz mm-hmm. but writing them out in a way where maybe they're almost classically kind of written out mm. and, um, and so I, I put some of these ideas together, played them for Barry, Barry was really into the music and then when we put it up against the, the early sequences of the movie it just was missing stuff it wasn't quite right and Barry, you know, and, and, and Barry was so excited by the music but it just wasn't right, right. and that's the fascinating thing with the process where we, none of us know and yeah. And so the excitement I think for for us is this 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 journey of discovery, literally, where we, you know we put it up, we see it's not great, and then it's like, okay, well, what is it? what What are we missing? Are we in the right emotional universe? Is it the sounds of the instruments? and what And we discovered it was um strings that we needed, coupled with the brass. and the strings, this the sound of cellos became the symbol in the movie of love, yeah. And it was this sort of interplay between the two where you have strings and and the brass are almost in a dialogue with each other, and that dialogue transforms over the course of the movie. Right. And that was the thing where, you know, I'm taking guidance from Barry, and what I love about it is I'm looking for things that I love, but the ultimate test is always what, you know, in this case, what does Barry feel? Right. And the amazing thing with Barry is not only does he love movies and love music passionately but he knows what he's looking for and in the sense that when we're there when we find it we're there right, and, he, and he knows.
0: I feel like you know what you're looking for too because you know even within that movie you know I was reading somewhere that when you read the part in the script where Tish and Fani, the two characters uh, at the center of the story they they can finally they see hope in getting their apartment, and so it's this really joyous, beautiful moment where they're just, like, kind of shouting to this guy in excitement, and you you read that in the script, and you you basically said, like, oh, I have, I know what I want to do with this scene, so I'd love for you to talk about that, because I uh, think yeah. you're, that how you interpret text into music is really fascinating to me.
1: Thank you. That That was a very powerful moment when i read the script and i saw that where like you were saying for the first time tish and Fanny feel like they're going to be able to get this apartment and there's this gorgeous scene where they start yelling to the sky out of joy and um you know i I guess part of what i spend all my time thinking about is these sort of these ideas of you know how how might i translate musical motifs or chords or melodies into emotions and and being sensitive to you know what chords am I drawn to when I hear something how do I feel you know I mean maybe it's almost like you know there's that that kind of metaphor of like cooking you know there there are certain you know foods and flavors and spices that that clearly translate into different tastes and flavors and you know and I think with music it's there's a similar element you know um Quincy Jones, I think, has talked about, has used those I mean, the metaphors yeah. of, like, cooking and flavors, you know. And, but I think it's very apt where, um, in that case, there was, I believe that melodies, the shapes of melodies have, um, you know, the shapes have a meaning in a way. And there was something about Tish and Fonny yelling to the sky that felt like, you know, Barry had said brass to me. And I was thinking to myself, okay, what if there was a trumpet that yells to the sky, you know mm-hmm. that itself, the melody is going upwards, and right. and 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 it's shouting upwards. And what they what might that do? And um, you know, there were these chords that I started exploring that I played for Barry. And um, the beautiful thing with Barry is so he's just you know, I'll say, oh, this could be cool. What do you think? And he'll always just say, show me. Yeah, he's just like, show me. And so I'll I'm like, okay. So I put this together, and um, there is that thing where it works and it feels connected. Um, and it feels right, and uh, I think. You know, again, on a very personal level, that's what you're always striving for is those moments where it's almost like a physical, uh, you know, acknowledgement in a way. Like when I think when some of those things really work emotionally and with the film, you feel it, you know, you almost you get like a shiver down your spine when something really, really connects. Right. And um, Barry and I were were there, there are moments in our in both Moonlight and in Beale Street where, you know, where we find something together like that. And, and it's always together I mean that's the really beautiful thing I think we can share that experience and um, film music is so collaborative you know I don't do it by myself like right. Barry is 100% my guide where you know without him direct, literally directing me I wouldn't know if what I was doing was right Right. and and that's the fun thing we get to share that together we share that moment of discovery and it's exhilarating I mean I you know these, those moments are some of the most profound moments in my life
0: Wow, and I would imagine that you know with a movie like If Beale Street Could Talk you know it's a love story it's a love story it's a romantic love story it's a family love story it's just there's and to me, in my in my mind, I would I would imagine that that's a little bit easier to wrap your mind around about you know what how to how to how do you how do what does love sound like And strings? That's that's what a lot of people go to. But when you have a movie like The Big Short or Vice, like it, it's a little like how do you how do you make the sound of finance and how do you make the sound of Dick Cheney's life? There's so, a real... I mean, when it comes to these ones that are a little bit more abstract than most, like yeah. what's your approach for those types of movies?
1: That's that's no no that's that's great because. I I think
0: um, it's it shows you how
1: these there are different things where, for example, with Beale Street, it is love you're saying, you know, and each movie has each movie has a wavelength. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a certain like 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 frequency that that movies like vibrate at where like emotionally with the story with the characters with the world and a lot of the you know whatever the sound that's going to be the sound that that amplifies that or resonates with that to use that metaphor is there is something that i think it'll feel you know what i'm always look always looking for musically is there are certain types of scores or sounds in a movie that feel like they're just in the movie. They feel like they're part of the movie, and when it doesn't work, um, you know, I've sort of said before that I feel like it, like, sits on top of the movie, Mm. you know, and where you're sort of, like, it looks, it's just not gelling. Yeah. So, so the way that I'm thinking about it is, like, what's the sound that just feels like it's in that world? And with The Big Short, I remember literally one of the first things uh, Adam said to me was, he said, what's the sound of dark math? (laughs) What's dark (laughs) mathematics? And... You know, that I sounds like a rabbit hole you can just was, fall down was, in your head. It was, around, yeah. So I started, you know, for some reason I had this idea of, well, I wanted there to be uh, a combination of elements where it would feel, on the one hand, stable, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, unstable, because right. I was thinking about markets, and that's kind of what markets are. You know, they seem... They seem stable, they seem like they're places for investment, but then there are Jesus. moments of total the bottom chaos. bottom falls out. And yeah. Exactly. Total <laughs> chaos, you know, in a collapse, in a financial collapse. Right. And so, uh, for whatever the reason, there was this idea I had of like six interlocking pianos that at times would all be sort of synced up, and then at times they would feel like strange. Yeah. And um, I put this sort of demo together and sent it to Adam. and. Um, uh, this is before he had hired me and then he was like okay you're hired <laughs> so, so that was the that was the one. but but you're right i mean i don't i think every movie really is a completely different um emotional but also intellectual journey and there are always those times where you know you're thinking one thing and the director might be thinking another thing yeah and those are these cool opportunities where you're sort of like you know realizing like that that happened um you know on moonlight in a couple of very specific places where i remember thinking to myself okay i I think we're going to feel this and then and then Barry would say, "Oh, actually I want to feel this." Yeah. And those moments were very revelatory where I was like, "Oh, I never even hmm. thought about that." Right. You know. So um so that's why it's so interesting cuz you're learning yourself as you go.
0: Right. And you know, I feel like it, it can't I can't say this enough like people listening nicholas is having quite a year you have the (laughs) the score for if Feels street could talk and vice you know working with directors that you've worked with in the past before so what what is that because i would imagine that you develop kind of a shorthand and you've and you've mentioned before very accurately so that you're not doing this alone so when it comes to that collaboration process do you find it's roughly similar across the board or do you find yourself uh you find yourself kind of bending when you're working with different directors like what's that about because you like I said you've worked with two amazing directors sure. on multiple films Adam McKay and Barry Jenkins so what is that collaboration process like with with both of them
1: Yeah um I've you know my own process of working with directors has evolved over time and I I think that in some ways um the big short for me was a very uh you know uh, impactful experience because it was on the big short that I came to this view that the only way to do this was to uh, have this incredibly strong, close collaboration Mm -hmm. with a director and uh, and the post team in general, if possible, you know, so on the big short I you know I obviously working with a director is always a, a collaboration but on the big short Adam actually um invited me to LA and uh, I lived in his pool house that summer <laughs> and uh, and so he were, yes, literally we were we were living there and and uh, and he invited me into the editor room you know wow. and I remember thing to myself how fascinating it was to be sitting there where Hank Corwin who's this legendary editor who edited the big short and natural born killers and right. you know uh, worked on JFK you know I mean he's done so many amazing projects and sitting with him and Adam and we would just sit in the room together and I would bring my keyboard there and we would just try stuff out right there. Wow. So, you know, Hank would be editing a scene and he'd be like, you know, I'm kind of feeling this. And I would say, well, what about this? And I would literally just bring my computer over and we'd, before it was even put into the system, I would like play something next to the oh, picture. Wow. And Hank has sort of likened it to the way that we were like playing jazz together. I was going to say, it sounds like a jam session. <laughs> literally, that's what it was. and. I had never had that experience before. So once once I had that experience, I was like, "Oh my God, this is the only way to do this." Because in you know five minutes, you can explore ideas that over email or mm. over distance would take you three weeks, four weeks, five, if if ever, if yeah. you'd ever get there. You know, we could iterate in a way where, like, in two seconds, we'd be like, "Oh, that's not going to work." Of course not. But what
0: about that? Exactly.
1: And um, from that experience, you know, it was actually about three or four weeks after that, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe four weeks after that, that I met Barry, Mm -hmm. um, I think it was that summer. And, um, and I remember, uh, you know, over the course of that summer getting this very, very strong feeling about that process. And when we started working on Moonlight together, I remember right at the beginning, Barry said to me, you know, so what's, how should this work? Like, what is the best process, and because I felt so (laughs) strict, literally, I said to him, I was like, so here's what we're going to (laughs) do, I was like, we're going to work in my studio together, I was like, can you fly to New York, and can we just be together, and he was like, yes, and so we did that, where he would, um, on Moonlight, he would, you know, they'd be editing the movie in LA, Mm -hmm. and then he would fly to New York, and we would spend days together at a time. I mean, he would just sit on my couch in my studio, we would order Shake Shack, we would you know, <laughs> we would you know, I have a you know big screen, we put the movie up there, we'd watch the movie together, and I would and I would play him things and, and we would just see how they felt together. Right. And um it was over those days that, you know, I think it was so it was really for me those those were formative experiences. That that experience on Big Short and on Moonlight where I just saw what was possible with that. Mm-hmm. And now I don't I don't think I could do it otherwise. Yeah. you know, it's such a um, it's such a joy when you have that immediacy, mm-hmm. right? With the with the uh, both the experimenting and with um, with the experience of being in close collaboration,
0: definitely. And what I love particularly about your work is that. You're not afraid to go to unconventional measures to find the right sound because when you did the score for Moonlight, you took uh, the chopped and screwed method <laughs> or yes. technique yes. that a lot of rap artists use, and you applied it to this orchestrated score. And with If Beale Street Could Talk, there's a lot of there's really effective use of distortion in it. And I would love it if you could kind of break down one of your favorite examples of turning a regular piece of music on its head like that. Oh, totally. You're so good at it. Oh, thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, you know what? What's interesting is um, I remember on Moonlight, for example... um, Early on, this is those early, the power of those early conversations. Um, Barry right away from the beginning knew that he wanted real instruments and mm-hmm. he wanted this idea of like, what if we had this classical yeah. sound to the score? Um, but it was early on that you know he was telling me about his love of chopped and screwed music, and uh, you know which is that process where you take a recording and you slow it down. Right, and when you slow it down, the pitch goes down, and you get this really enriched deepened, beautiful texture. It like it like literally sort of stretches the music apart, you know? And uh and and we had that idea early on of like, what if we did this to my music? What if I wrote music, recorded the music and took my own recordings and did that to it. Um again, one of those ideas that, you know, sounds cool but might not work. (laughs) And then but the amazing thing was with Moonlight it did work. And it felt connected to the story and it felt connected um to what to emotionally what we wanted um and what was interesting about that actually was going back to you know being in my hip-hop band the reason that when barry sort of said to me you know how would we do this um it was all those years working in audio production and and making you know Hip-hop beats, for example, that I knew immediately how to do that. Yeah. you know it was um, and so I think there's all those years you spend where you're just in the studio and you're just obsessed with something yeah. and you're in love with something, and you are, you know, I used to spend every hour of the day just you know playing around with my equipment and 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 trying to figure out how is how does that track get made like right. how do you, you know so um so th- having a facility, I guess, with that technology was really helpful. And on Beale Street, I think a, a clear example of that is um, is the sequence where Daniel and Fani are That's
0: speaking. My favorite scene in the movie because of what you did with the oh, music. Thank you. Because I mean, obviously Brian's performance as Daniel, Brian Tyree it's Henry, incredible. is, is a phenomenal. But the, what you did with the music ad, added so much. So thank you. Please tell us about it. So that. That <laughs> I well, had to interject. because no, it's no, such no, but, a great scene.
1: Well, thank you. That that was a very that was a really. Um, uh, sort of, uh, that was a revelation, I think, for us, too, uh, because it was a turning point in how we looked at the mm-hmm. music in the film. Um, up until the, we had focused on that scene, the music that I'd been writing for If Beale Street Could Talk was the sound of, let's say, love and joy. You know, mm-hmm. it was this, this this brass and string universe. Um, and in this scene, Daniel, um, uh, played by Brian Tyree Henry, uh, has... You know, he's come out of jail, and he's talking to the character Fani, played by Stephon James, and he's talking about how he—the horrors that he underwent, and he's talking about the injustice. And it's an incredibly powerful perform- set of performances. And there's a moment there where I remember turning to Barry and I said, you know, I want to feel that. Like, I want to feel that horror. And at, when we were first looking at the scene, um, on the record player in the room there is Miles Davis's Blue and Green play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, we just sort of said to ourselves, well, what if score did come in, but what would that score be, you yeah. know? And kind of in that same way that I was talking about with that idea that we're just almost playing jazz together, yeah. Um, I was like, let me try something. And Barry's like, okay, do your thing, show me. <laughs> and I, I took the Miles Davis and I just started running it through this very long-tailed reverb. Mm-hmm. So it started, you know, I didn't change any note of that Miles Davis, but it just started, Uh, feeling perceptually like you're going into a different state of mind, you know? And um, I took, talking about distortion and -hmm. and audio morphing, I took the cellos that you hear when Tish and Fani are first making love earlier, so this Mm -hmm. music that is meant to represent joy. Yeah. And I took that, and I bent it, and I distorted it so that it actually sounded hellish, and it sounded like... um, like, it was this horror coming up through the floorboards, almost was low and this rumbling kind of grinding sound. And Barry looked at me and he said, how can we... Let's break this music. Yeah. Like, how do we break it? And that became this metaphor for all the moments of injustice in the film. We focused on taking the moments of love and of beauty and of joy and harming them. Right. And that was our musical metaphor for what injustice is.
0: Wow. And that... I think... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's not... There's a lot of amazing film composers out there, but I don't know of many that really think about music the way that you do. Cuz I think in many respects it could just be a very kind of straightforward score like strings, horns, all that stuff, but to take certain scenes and to bend and break the music the way that you do, I guess I guess my question is, I mean like what what room if any do you do you think there is for more innovation in film composition?
1: I think we're at a very exciting time Mm -hmm. um, right now because not only are there more people finally getting the opportunity to be a part of the film industry, Mm -hmm. and in particular film music, um, and there's so much further that that has to go, but I think that you're already seeing voices from all over the world who are bringing their art. Which, by, by definition, is bringing more yeah. fascinating music into the fold. So new ideas that, you know, moving away maybe from some ideas that have taken hold over time. You know, yeah. that's, how you get, that's how you get evolution in the sounds mm-hmm. um, and in the art. But also, I think we're at a moment in technology where I've always had this feeling that, you know, instruments are technology, you know, A piano is just this crazy machine made out of wood and metal and right. string. You know, and, and it's a piece of technology. And I feel that we, in the past 20 years, audio technology and the technology we have with computers um, enable so much experimentation. And I'm just really drawn to that. Yeah. Um, you know, I use a program called Ableton Live where you can take audio and it's, it becomes like Play-Doh. In your hands, and um, and for me, I think one of the fascinating things is making recordings, and you know, recording something, let's say in the real world, right. and then taking it and experimenting with it in this te- technological digital world, and seeing what happens. You know, because um, I-, I certainly don't know what's going to happen when I do those things. And sometimes you do these experiments, and you're like, "That's very strange," and I don't know what that is. <laughs> but there are times where you do it, where you're like, "Wow, that's that's a sound that I really." that sound hits right. me a certain way
0: this may sound like a ridiculous question but how do you hear music just music when you're not working on anything when you're just you know in uh, listening to the radio or listening to like because I feel like people like you you know this is obviously you know your profession this is what you do you you spend a lot of time thinking about uh creating music deconstructing that music so How how do you hear music? Like, is it, can you just enjoy it as is, or do you just get in your head and you're just like, oh, they used this and they did that and da da da?
1: (laughs) I mean, I think. It's yeah, I, I definitely uh I think I go through a pretty immediate process of analysis of every piece <laughs> that I hear. <laughs> like because also like that's what I've always done, you know. I yeah. mean maybe since Chariots of Fire. Right. Know, the first thing I did, for whatever the reason, my brain was like, I wanna figure that out. Right. So when I hear music, I mean, yeah, the first thing I do is I sort I sort of just unconsciously, mentally like you know deconstructed in a way and I'm like I know okay I know what that is you know uh, whether I like it or not because I think yeah. you know um, one of the things I mean the the best thing is you know is not thinking about those things actually because mm-hmm. I think even, you know with movies and music I mean the, you know you want to lose yourself in things you mm-hmm. want to get into that state of flow where it's not about you know I think with every art the intellectual elements are fascinating, but that's not why we make art and that's not why we listen to art. Mm-hmm. At least, certainly not for me, you know. Um, I think those things are beautiful and fascinating, but I think art is about a human emotional experience. Yeah. So for me I think that maybe after I've analyzed something <laughs> in my head I think I'm going I'm trying to find what moves me in something. You right. know, and I and there are certain musics that just for me that just hit you in a way. But just like with, with the film process, I mean, I think that when you're making things, your thesis is, if I feel something, I hope yeah.
0: that others will feel that too. Definitely. And what, looking back at your career, you know, has there ever been a time where that communication was hard for you to get to because i would imagine i don't know what writer's block or (laughs) composer's block is for you but you know like we like we like we've been discussing like you really are tasked with doing doing something that's really tricky like making music out of music itself is abstract but then you're making music to the tune of something abstract like finance or all these things so if is there a particular score that you found really hard to crack there was a period of
1: time where I was writing so much music, mm-hmm. and I remember getting into this sort of rhythm where, you know, when music, when writing music, just becomes a habit yeah. and it's natural to you all the time. Um, it loses the fear associated with mm-hmm. failure. I think, right, when you're just doing stuff, right. you know, and you're not, you know, that voice in your head turns off. You're not saying, "Is this?" You're just like, "No, I do this all the time. I write music. Right. Like, I love this." You know, and for me, I think. Um, those were the moments where personally I first started thinking of myself as a composer because you know when you're growing up and you, especially if you have a classical background, you know, there are these like superhuman figures of yeah. the past, like Beethoven's a composer. How could I possibly be a composer? <laughs> like there's no <laughs> way. I but I think it was in those years where, when you're just doing a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, that you start saying, "Well, maybe I'm a composer because I write music all the time." I mean, technically, maybe, yes, <laughs> you know, and, but but still, it's hard to like yeah. wrap wrap your head around that. But I think that those experiences um, have sort of uh, they maybe in a way have steeled me against the um, potential like creative pitfalls yeah. to some extent. Like I feel um, there are certainly I think on a writing level, I often don't have a fear of um, can I write something here? Yeah. or what what you know, I think the the challenge with film composition is much more about what what is the right sound. Mm. You know, once I know what, right. the how I, know, I feel I know how to do. But the mystery is the what? Yeah. Like, you know, and also the mystery is the where.
0: Yes. Like in yes, like
1: in movies, you know, where do you put music? right? It's less like a writer's block, you mm-hmm. know, and more of a it's almost like a big picture, almost, like, philosophical questions sometimes of, like, yeah. what is right for a moment. Those are the challenges, I think. Right.
0: Oh, God, I wish I... I have so many other questions, but I feel like we can just talk about this forever. <laughs> so if you could leave our listeners with one bit of creative advice, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's something over the years that I've thought about a lot uh, and, you know, talked to friends of mine and actually originated with talking to my bandmates about this, where um, I think when you're writing something... Um, there's always this question of like, you know, what do we do? You know, if it's not, if it doesn't feel right, if it's not working, what do we do? Mm-hmm. You know, do you push through it or do you, you know, how does that work? And I remember we had this very, this will sound very obvious, but we had this sort of like set of rules
0: right <laughs> where okay. we would say to
1: ourselves, okay, if it feels good, keep
0: going. right If it doesn't, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? The greatest things are often the simplest things. That was, and it was like
1: when we came up with that, I remember we were like, Oh my God!
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> if,
1: so if there's any advice that at least works for me is you know if I'm feeling something when I'm writing, I, I keep with it because it feels good. You want to yeah. keep doing it. and if I'm not feeling something, just go go take a walk, just go have a cup of coffee. you know right. don't and don't worry. don't worry about it. Just you'll part. come back and something else will, will happen. Nice.
0: Ah. Nicholas, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
1: It's so great talking to you. Likewise.
0: Ah, amazing. Amazing. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe if you like what you've been hearing. See you soon.